I, I believe our success as humanity generally is tied to each other more than we ever realize. Yeah. Uh, you know, person of color or not, Muslim or not, it's yeah. our success is tied to each other. Dr. Abdurrahman, I'm a clinical and consulting psychologist. Um, what do I do? Jeez. Okay, that's where do I start? Okay, um, my my career has been very interesting and fortunate. I think I so I started off as a as a um, I started off the clinical psychologist, and even that I remember. So I grew up like I'm I'm come come from an immigrant family. I'm an immigrant myself, and uh, you know, like most immigrant families, particularly those that come from the background that I come from, have a real push for their kids to go into. Well, for me, it wasn't law, engineering, and medicine. It was wow. just it was That's just impressive. it was just medicine. It was oh. that <laughs> the only that was the only direction my father wanted me to go in. Yeah. Isn't, uh, isn't that interesting that a lot of like us immigrants that come from these countries, our parents are interested in like professional degrees. Like, I feel like it's a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. Well, it's a bit of both, and I'll tell you why I think it, I'll tell you how I came full circle. Okay, yeah. Thing. So, um, my father, I mean, I think I'd be, I understood that he wanted the best for me, but I don't think I truly understand what he was trying to get at. And he faced so much discrimination in the workplace himself. Like, and I, and I watched it happen growing up. That I think he, he well, he said, it, I never want, I never want you to get into something where somebody can take something away from you. And in his mind, he said, if you're a physician, like in his mind, that kind of doctor, um, then no one can ever take that away from you. No one right. can. Now you have to be, he's like, as an immigrant, as a person of color, and as a Muslim, you're always going to face discrimination. And, you know, that, that he told me this in the 80s as a kid growing up, and it's, it's just as true now as it was then. And he's right. Um, he thought if I was a professional, particularly a physician, it would be a need that that would never really go away. And as a result, he said it wasn't about prestige for him, but it was it was about the practicality of a need. People are always going to need issues. When my father when my father found out that I wanted to be a psychologist, it was very hard for him. And it wasn't hard for him. And I know and I know with many uh, immigrant families that come from Arab or South Asian families. You know, or even East Asian families, it's sometimes tied to prestige, and it wasn't that for him. He was just very concerned that I wouldn't be able to make a living. Like we didn't we didn't grow up well off. We grew up very hard times, like many immigrant newcomer families. And so for him, he was very concerned that I wouldn't be able to to make that make ends meet. Anyhow, he so I remember having a, a psychology mug, U of M, and I kept it at the back of the cupboard. Yeah. Right, because he opened it, and that was the first thing he'd see in the morning. Yeah. It wouldn't leave him in the best mood. Now he's like super happy, but it was it was just about him knowing that he just wanted to know that there was some security for his right. son. Anyhow, so I wanted to move into psychology because I wanted to understand uh, why people did things, um, and I realized that medicine just taught me how, not yeah, why. Why? And I didn't know why, and so I, I decided to go into psychology. 
so that's the so the main reason for why was it was it like a young did you know at a young age or like okay medicine no. really isn't no i didn't think you would no I, like I, I mean i i think i like the idea of helping people yeah i mean that was a nice idea and that appealed to me but i think by the time i met a psychologist when i was in grade 12 and he actually was in our community his name is dr ali khatib and he used to always say to me abdurrahman there's a position waiting for you at the department if you become a psychologist. Yeah. And I took his word for it. I'm like, really? There's a position waiting for me? Stable uh, job. Hey, I, I will. I'm going to be a psychologist if there's a position waiting for me. Anyhow, as like a young person, um, it was really helpful to meet other people in my community uh, from my background that actually did that work. Right. So that really kind of pushed me to go into psychology. And then, and then I stayed. Um, you know, I was committed to that. When I got into psychology, a lot of my work, so my initial work was my research background was in, was in trauma, particularly, uh, sexual abuse of children. And so I ended up working a lot in trauma. Uh, when I graduated it, I ended up applying those skills. You have to work like, so I ended up becoming an expert in behavior change Right. that moved me to working in anxiety disorders. Um, and then that became my specialty clinically. That's where you got your, that was where the St. Boniface hospital, that's where you worked as a not waiting for me. I was like, that, hey, that's where he worked. Is that where the guy worked? No, he worked in the department. Yeah. But, oh, okay, okay, okay. but he didn't, he didn't give me the job. No, uh, but, but, but there was, there was somebody who, who really stepped up. It was a gentleman by the name of Dr. John Walker, who yeah. has since passed actually. Um, and he gave me his job and that was a very kind thing for him to do. I think created uh, pathways. Anyhow, I did that job for about 10 years. And alongside with that, I was doing a lot of work in cross-cultural psychology. And uh, it's like, so work across different cultural groups and ethnicities. And then I ended up doing a lot of getting into leadership in that profession and ended up doing a lot of consulting. So I ended up doing a lot of consulting to health organizations, both locally and, and internationally. Is that where t- uh, t- Tanzania comes in? it comes in yep that's right ah, so so i ended up doing that work um and then there was like the syrian refugee crisis and a Years lot of my starting to work in again consulting and, and yeah. providing workshops but then i had a kid and you know like this issue with racism was really bothersome to me for a very long time um and then i started to watch him right like i mean like he was born in 2013 Wow. You think he would, you know, we'd be past it, but you can see him internalizing a lot of these messages. Yeah. He said he didn't want to be a Muslim when he was almost three years old. And the reason why is he said, because Paw Patrol only celebrated Christmas. And like those <laughs> things really just like, they just floored me. And I recognize the value now that, that we weren't, we, we hadn't done the work that we needed to do. Right. And so in addition to my clinical practice, I, used to, I moved into a consulting practice on issues of mm-hmm. diversity inclusion. And so a lot of what I do now is I work with leadership and with organizations on understanding issues of racism and discrimination um, from a psychological perspective and how to make organizational change. And so for me, it was like really bizarre because I didn't intend to end up like I I do have a practice and I I do my clinical work, but this is my other, this is my quote unquote side hustle. And I didn't expect to come full circle, right? So if you think about my father, experiencing racism in the workplace, like considerably so much so that it impacted our income as a family. 
and him telling me not to go into psychology. <laughs> and now I'm in psychology and applying psychology to workplaces so that they don't do to their employees what those workplaces did to my father, right? Like that, yeah. that was just like, I felt so fulfilled, right? Like I felt like I did my father right. I felt like I, I felt like as much, you know, I felt like I, I stepped up and I was, I'm hoping that not only could I help provide some justice to the people who face those discrimination and can help correct right. situations, but hopefully create a better place, hopefully. I mean, I'm just a single voice, but yeah. I hope that I can create that kind of a circumstance and a situation um, for my child and our children and generation like yours as well, too. So, Man, I, I understand where you're coming from. As a kid who grew up in uh, 21st century, not 21st, like 20th century, uh, coming to Canada when I'm like six years old and moving moving from Winnipeg to a small town called uh, Ham Yoda, really small, only 800 people. All of them are Caucasian, and yeah. we're the only Muslim family for probably a hundred kilometer radius. The mm-hmm. closest city was an hour, about an hour and like ten minutes away. It was Brandon, and mm-hmm. there there was maybe like a few families here, right? So I understand where you're coming from that concept of like discrimination, all that. Like it's not that I've personally felt it, but I can never you can you can never you can definitely see it in people. You know, you can just see their eyes glaring, their eyes like making you seem that that you're less than what you are. Even though you are, you act the same way, you talk the same way, you have the same language, the same everything, this color of your skin and the way that what you believe in are the are pinnacle little details that expose you to society that you're a different human being or a, a different person. But what, what what's crazy about it is the fact that once you get out of your shell and once everyone gets older, as I'm getting older with all my friends and we're coming to an age, it's so interesting to see that those little things are what makes them interesting and that's what makes them my friends. Those little things are the reasons why I have a fulfilled, happy lifestyle because those little differences that my friends have are the reasons why I talk to them. They're the reasons why they make me a better person and why I make them a better person. Right. It's just crazy to see that as I get older, that concept comes to me. But as a young person, you don't really see that, I guess. Well, you know, you say you didn't really experience discrimination except for these like looks at, like I'll bet you like I'll bet you money. I know I know as Muslims we don't bet, but I'll, yeah, bet, no, I get it. I'll bet you I'll bet you a farmer's bet. You know, I'll bet you money that that you have. Oh, hundred percent. I agree. I think I, I as I'm getting older, I, I go back and think to those thoughts. Yeah. I definitely got discriminated. It's because well, we're so innocent as a child, we don't notice it. Well, so what happens is that is that we internalize that racism and we accept that as normal and we see it as like, well, we are different. We are in quote unquote, their country, you know, like we've internalized this mindset that somehow we're less than. So that's, that's where I ended up. And, and so as a result of that, like I've been, I've been fortunate enough. I had an opportunity to do a next talk. Um, I, I work with some really wonderful companies, um, you know, that do some, pretty nice thing. So that that's where my, my career path has been quite like it's, it's, you know, twisted and turned. Um, but, but yeah, I'm here doing what I can do. So, you know, as, um, as, uh, you know, you said your dad wasn't really wanting you to do medicine, right? So mm-hmm. when did you get your PhD in psychology? Oh, was geez. that the day your dad was like, you know what? He's still a doctor. <laughs> That's not a medical <laughs> <laughs> No, actually, you know what? My dad was pretty cool. Like, I think he just, 
it wasn't when I actually got the PhD. Like yeah. he supported me through it. I, I think he needed a couple of years in my undergrad to understand what it was and what the job prospects were. And he never really stopped me, but he was for the first little while. Like I remember my first year of university, first or second year, he was like, not happy. You know, he's like, well, I can't you be a doctor. I'm like, I am going to be a doctor. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, well, how are you going to make money? And I'm like, I'm like, well, this I'll make money. He's like, but are you going to be able to like, he's like, I don't want you to go through what I went through. Yeah. Like, are you going to have these difficulties? And we had these conversations. And so it was when he was able to see that I'd be okay, that he was happy, you know? Right. And yeah. I think he's always proud, but I think he was, he was happy. So I think, I think every parent, especially immigrants or non-immigrant parents wants the best for their child, right? It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. And I, I've had these conversations with my dad, right? And having gone to engineering and stuff, like I remember sitting in grade 12, I didn't know what I wanted to do. This is the summer and I should already be in a university. I should have already accepted a university, but we're sitting there. And he's like, have you decided what you want to do? Like I've had these conversations throughout my whole life because you know, immigrants, uh, parents just want you to be the best of possible you can. It's not about them. It's about if will you have a successful lifestyle and they want you, they want to see you succeed more than they did, right? Because that's, yeah. that's just a parent's feelings. And I, I've had these conversations with that and I'm like, you know what? I might do psychology. <laughs> I remember oh. him just looking at me and he's like, no, you don't want to do psychology. He's like, I, I, I've seen you talk to people and I don't think you'd be a great psychologist. Oh. Like he never, he never turned it down, but he was just like, I think you should look at what your talents are when you're capable of doing. And I think that's what right. you should be going for. Right. And I think that was a good lesson to learn and <laughs> not doing something I might've regretted. Right. So what drives you to help people? I know you said it's your past, you know, it's like the past way that you felt and how you were grazed, but what is your main devotion towards helping people? You know, I don't know. It's hard to answer that question without seeming a little, a little hokey. Do you know what I'm trying to say? No, like, yeah, I get that. Like, I don't know. I mean, my belief system is, I'd say my belief system has really been a big part in that, you know, like, um, so I'm a Muslim, as you know, yeah. um, you know, and there's these things that stuck with me, you know, they, uh, like we have these prophetic sayings, uh, of Prophet Muhammad and, you know, said, if you, a smile on the way uh, of somebody is charity, removing a hardship from somebody is charity. And that removing a hardship from somebody, like, I just felt like, I felt like if I could live my life, like I said, it's really hard to answer. Yeah. This it is, it is. But, but the honest truth is like, I felt like if I, if I could live my life, being able to assist in the removal of hardship, um, then I would feel fulfilled as a, as a human being. Um, so that, that's what drives me. And honestly, like working with people is just so fascinating, right? Like working with people, like I love my job. I absolutely love my job to be able to meet people, to understand their stories and, you know, and what drives them and the difficulties they have. Like, I think it affords me a privilege to understand humanity, uh, from a vantage point that many people don't have. And I think any, any person who works with human beings has that advantage, but, but I get to know people emotionally in an intimate way. Right. Like I, I get to know the insides and outs of the way somebody thinks and feels. And to me, that's a real privilege for somebody to trust me with that information. Um, and so I, I can't help but have that to give a respect back to the people I work with right. to be able to assist them with that stuff. So. 
you know, you know, like how everyone goes on into their first job, right? Everyone feels nervous, anxious, and you know, they don't know if they'll be able to succeed in the field that they're in. And everyone has those doubts, right? When you went into your first job, how was that experience like? What was that first experience of like, just going there and being like, you know what, this might, I might work out or like, this might not work out for me. Like, how was that like for you? Uh, well, I mean, I think with my program, by the time you get into that, like they, tr- you go through training and practica. So you know what to expect. And as always, there's, you know, you're the young person. So you always want to do well and impress your colleagues and people who are senior to you. I, I would say like, there's always, and I find this the case with many, with many professionals is there's always like particularly academics, right? Like, and, and they train us like my profession in an academic way. There's always an imposter syndrome. Yeah. Like you, you always feel like you're kind of like behind the eight ball and somehow you don't know what you're doing. Right. That, that was there a lot when you were younger. And, and I think like, I, if I think about it, I think I know physicians and I, and I know physicians in training and, and the culture in medicine is rough, but they sometimes do a better job of instilling their confidence. And with psychologists, because you're trained from a research background, you're always trained to be overly critical. Yeah. You know, it's not like, it's like, eh, so you're always second guessing. So as a young person, there was always that, that, that doubt, am I doing the right thing? You know, am I helping this person? Some, am I giving the right information or am I not giving the right information? Yeah. That tends to go away when you get busier. Like I remember students of mine asking me like, when does that go away? And like, when you get so busy that you have no time to think about it. Because at some point in time, you just get inundated with the work and, the, and there's no time to actually, it's not that, it's not that you feel hubris. It's just, this is the work needs to get done. Uh, and, then, and then you don't have time to think about that. You just have to go with what you know to help that person. See, now you, you get a lot of students going through your program, right? And you have, you've seen a lot of people, you've met a lot of people during your, like your, either your clients, or not your clients, right? Have you ever, have you ever had like, had a client where you were like, you felt like you helped them, but inevitably psych- like even that treatment didn't help that person. Cause I've had friends that have gone through therapy and it doesn't help them. And I don't know, like, and then you become, and then you just realize, is there no hope? Or like, I feel like people at that point just don't know what to do. Is that, have you ever had like a case like that where, you know, people, therapy just doesn't work for them? Well, there, I mean, there's something called readiness for change the concept where some people are just not in a position where they're ready to change. Right. So there's a lot of factors that would really determine whether somebody gets something out of therapy. There's, yeah. there's also somebody who'd be a good fit for the type of therapy. Like therapy is not just therapy, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Spending, there's different actually modalities and therapeutic kind of perspectives and treatment styles. So it's about determining fit sometimes. So sometimes it could be the person not ready to change. It could be, the therapeutic modality doesn't work. Sometimes there's a poor fit. You know, sometimes you go even see a physician and if you don't like them, you're not going to do what they're asking you to do. Right. right? So was I saying medicine doesn't work? No, medicine does work. It's just, there's all these other variables. So psychology and therapy does work, but there's a lot of other stuff that can get in the way. Um, sometimes, sometimes it can be, sometimes it can be finances. Like our, our field clinically speaking is not covered under healthcare. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you're in the hospital, which there's very few of us, um, you know, and the the system's overrun, you can see a psychologist, but only for a limited amount of time. If you want to see a psychologist for just for therapy, for psychotherapy, for any kind of clinical disorder in the private sector, you have to pay out of your own pocket. 
Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, or you have to have an insurance plan. Whereas if you go see a psychiatrist who's trained as a physician, that's covered under the healthcare plan, even in private practice. So that can get in the way. There's a lot of times people run out and actually myself and a lot of psychologists will often continue seeing people yeah. pro bono because ethically, you know, they need it. And, but it, it puts, it puts people, like puts healthcare providers, like mental health care providers in a tough position. Um, so there's all those factors that would contribute to whether therapy works or doesn't work. It's also timing, right? Like yeah. there's times where there's just so many other things happening that people can't put the effort into work. Therapy is not, you don't just go in and talk about it and life gets better. You have uh, to put in the effort to change. You got to put in the effort. There's work, right? Like there's, It's crazy how much that, that one sentence means so much that you have to put in the effort. Like if you don't put in the effort, it's never going to work, right? Yeah, I mean, just, to, quote, to quote Britney Spears, you got to work. <laughs> yeah, got to work at it. Yeah, like it, it is It is not, and people say, well, thank you, you did the work. I'm like, no, I didn't do the work, you did the work. You know, like in between, and this, the research shows is that when people engage in the in the work in between sessions, that's what gets that's what gets them better. Right. So, so yeah. yeah, go ahead. Go on, that was it. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, so, you know, as a, as a being a teenager in the 21st century, like I said, I have a lot of friends that, you know, were, these are the discussions that we're having, especially now with the coronavirus and all this, these are like the kind of discussions about mental health and mental physique and like how we're doing and all that is happening. What kind of advice would you give to children in this society that are growing up, either they're immigrants or they're non-immigrants or what kind of advice would you give them so that it would help them grow grow, you know, without feeling kind of like lonely or without feeling like that they're being left out of something? What kind of advice could they take from this? You mean in terms of like diversity and inclusion? In, exactly, in terms of diversity and inclusion. Well, well, I would say be mindful about internalizing people's negative views of you. Right. Right. Like really be mindful. Don't ever be. I know it sounds cliche, but don't ever be ashamed of who you are and your culture. And one of the ways to do that is to make sure you align yourself with people who are similar. Um, that doubt on who you are will eat at you and will cause you to fall apart, guaranteed hands down. It's that self-doubt that causes you to do things that you may not want to do and to move in the direction you don't want to move in. Um, Being internally quote unquote strong is not an easy task. And it happens, like we maintain strength by trying to find people, like to find a sense of community, to find a sense of relatability. The The research on psychological resilience shows that the people who survive trauma are people who have had at least one person they can trust. So find at least one person you can open up to and trust, uh, I would say. And, and, you know, situations vary from person to person. Um, Sometimes we have real challenges in different cultural communities. Sometimes our family or community truly doesn't get what's happening. But sometimes it's us not understanding where they're coming from, too. I would say to young people, you have to understand it goes both ways. And sometimes there's this impression that the white way to do things is the better way to do things. And I can tell you that's not true. In my profession and working after all these years, I found actually the answer is really in between. You know, I think I think there are benefits uh, on both sides of the fence. And you as an individual really have to find that middle path uh, to walk. That's a journey. That is a lot of work. But I'd say start having these conversations and I'd say don't be afraid to cold call people and ask for help, to ask for advice. I think what you're doing with your podcast for a lot of young people 
is really profound because I think what it does is it allows people to have these really difficult conversations, at least right. about professions and, and be able to just get the answers. Whereas many people can feel very shy to be able to approach people. But the best advice I ever got moving ahead professionally, and I would say I would apply this professionally, I would apply this issues of trying to connect with people who are similar or dissimilar is cold call people. Like you'd be surprised how open a lot of people are, no matter how, how high you up, you think they are, yeah. how open they are to wanting to talk to you and to give you their time. Yeah. So like, here's the thing, you know, going back to the question I had, right. It was like about how do you maintain, like, how do you t give advice? So as a friend, right, a lot of people don't have that person in their li lives or they have friends. Like most of the people li listening uh, to this podcast are probably either friends or have family, but they don't have a family member they can trust or someone around them, but they have a friend that can trust or you, or you are a friend that you can think that your friends can trust, right? What kind of friend do for another friend? What kind of like advice or what kind of, emotional support can they be like how how would a friend how should a friend interact with a friend that might be going through a situation i would say you don't have to be able to find the perfect solution like yeah. you know, often we hear about problems that are outside of our realm of experience and then we don't know what to do and a lot of times people don't know how to deal with uncomfortable situations and so they back off your job as a friend and a good social support is not to find the solution it's to be there and to validate that individual and you will be surprised like that, that alone, just to have somebody to be able to unburden your load with, to say, this is what's bothering me. This is what I'm struggling with you. You may not understand, but if you attempt to understand or listen or ask questions and then not run away because you're too scared to listen and yeah. don't know what to do, that's the best thing you can do for that person. And often you'll get calls back from that individual to say, you know, you really helped me. You've been very helpful. Right. Um, and, and I'd say stand up for people, you know, don't be, I think we live in a world where somehow we feel so uncomfortable with conflict that we don't stand up for people. Right. And I say, stand up for people, uh, be the best ally that you can be. Cause maybe they'll be the ally that you need when you need it. It's your time. Yeah. Let me, let me give you a clinical example. Uh, no, let me give you, I'll give you both a personal example sure. and, uh, and, a and a clinical example. So growing up, in my community, I was not the most popular person. Right. You know, I was somewhere in between the Indian and the Arab world or the South Asian and the Arab world. Yeah. Like my culture and my bloodlines are mixed and I don't belong to either. Uh, and as a result, I didn't really quite fit in. Um, there was a, there was like a, an older, like a teenage guy who used to kind of lead community stuff. And he was the kindest man to me. Like it was kindest person to me. Yeah. And that little bit of kindness, that was all I needed helped me grow so much. Right. Like, like to me, I grew up as a very shy kid. I grew up, I didn't always have that. Like my, my, thankfully I had my family, but I didn't have the peers. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, but having at least one person be kind to me made all the difference in the world. You know, that gave me this. And I can tell you now clinically, I'll tell you. So I, I remember seeing this young girl like ages ago, very early in my career. And she was, uh, I don't know, 13 or 14 years old. And uh, her mother brought her in to kind of say that, you know, you got to fix her. When I spoke to the girl, the girl was like, you know what? I'm having a lot of difficulty because my mom drinks a lot in the house. And, and as a result, like I have like no supports and like she's difficult to deal with. So I saw her once the second time I invited the mother in and I said, can we have a conversation? She's like, well, why would you want to talk to me? The problem is her. And I said, well, actually, you know, she's reporting that you're drinking in the home. And it might be a good idea. Like we can't address her stuff unless we deal with your stuff as well too. 
And so all I did is stand up for that girl. I mean, yeah. all I did is just kind of point out a problem. The woman never brought that woman back, never brought that girl back. That was it. Like that was it. That was the last time uh, it was done. Therapy was done. She was offended. I got a call like, I don't know, 10 years later. Wow. I got a call and this woman was like, can I speak to Dr. Abdurrahman? I'm like, this is him. And she's like, I don't know if you remember me, um, but you saw me like about 10 years ago. And you, you kind of stood up to my mom and you told her that her drinking was a problem. And she's like, I just want to tell you, like that changed my life. And she's like, when I was, she's because I realized that I wasn't the problem. And the thing with young people is that we tend to internalize a problem. If you're a young person of color or from a religious minority, you're internalizing that problem doubly. So, and she wasn't a person of color, but she said, you know, I've always, I always thought it was me and you standing up for me gave me the strength to move out of the house when I was 16. Wow. And she said, cause my mom wasn't changing. And she's like, I'm calling to let you know that I'm going to be walking onto stage to get my nursing degree next week. Wow. Talking about it makes me kind of misty eyed already. Like, yeah. I'm, you know, like my spine is tingling. And she's like, if it wasn't for you standing up for me, I don't think I would have ever left the house and believed in myself. And so the ability to stand up for somebody and just provide that little thing is profound. Like I it did, it did the world for me. Yeah. And I know what I, I didn't even realize what I did to, for this person. Um, I think it did the world for her. Do those, do you get those calls often or was that just like one in a blue moon? Um, there's, I mean, a lot of the people that I, I mean, usually when I see people, I see them on yeah. a regular basis and you know, people are very gracious and kind and appreciate. So, I guess the question you're asking is, do people make change? Yeah. yeah. Yes, people make change. People change. I believe in change. I absolutely believe in change. Well, I was more curious because I feel like those are the kind of things that the kind of feedback you get is what keeps you going. You know what I mean? Like those yeah. are the kind of feedbacks that justifies what you're doing. That makes you realize what you're doing is actually you're on the right path. Well, when you see people make changes, like when they work hard to make the changes they do, that's what keeps you doing the work that you're doing. So as a person who I'm assuming works a lot, because it just sounds like it, how do you maintain that healthy mental uh, mental lifestyle and healthy like phys- physical lifestyle as you like continue your work days? You know, like, I, again, I, my, my upbringing and my, like, my spiritual background has always taught me to be mindful about my life. And, you know, like the people and the teachers that I had growing up, were like mentors spiritually for me as well too. And I, and that spiritual thing has really taught me and I, and I apply this, I get, what I like is that the research and the, the science really supports that concept of mindfulness mm-hmm. and everything now is mindfulness. The new wave of yeah. psychology is all about mindfulness. So I guess what I learned from that is to always think, right? Like I, I grew up not always like I, we, as Muslims, we don't eat pork and having, yeah. to read the, having to read the ingredients label on anything that, anything that's fun, right? Damn, it's like, I really want to eat those Oreos, yeah. but lard in it at the time or gummy candy with gelatin. Like that was a sense of mindfulness that kept me always on my toes. And some people saw that as repressive, but for me, yeah. it was this always reevaluating. And for, as you know, like in our, in our practice, we have prayers. And to me, that's right. our meditation, right? Like, where you're constantly reevaluating where you're going, what you're doing. And it's not that it creates a sense of doubt, but it, for me, it creates that mindfulness. And so what I try, it's not that I'm always successful, is to always be mindful about a few things that are important in my life. Right. You know, um, I'm incredibly mindful about 
my son and trying to make sure that I'm present for like number one on my list. Um, my family, you know, uh, do I keep time for them? Um, physically active or being, you know, or eating or stuff like that. I, I have a chip bar in my office, right. you know. I, I knew I wouldn't get to the gym as regularly if I was going to be working. So it, it's not that I do it perfectly. And, and frankly, psychologically speaking, it's not about perfection. Mindfulness is about revisiting things on a regular basis. And that's how I think, I hope. I try to stay as balanced as I can be. It's called stability. Got to uh, stay. That's kind of the main concept of my podcast, to be honest, is that. It is that balance. It's that balance that we're all looking for in our lives. It's that kind of stability in each different profession. Because I know as a person who works as a profession, you're working all the time. And forgetting those little things can be so easy. Like forgetting and being mindful for the things that you should be thankful for or for the things that are important in your lives. That can become very secondary to a lot of people because a lot of people are career focused. And I think because of those things, it becomes such a like an impact on their lives that they forget about them. Well, think about factory workers. Like when you're doing the same thing all the time, it really doesn't help your mood. So there's, you know, we need to have a diversity of like we what we call cognitive diversity, a way of shifting our brain to do different things. Like it's not that we always need rest. We actually need time to rest, but what we do need is diversity of activity. And that keeps your mind very healthy. So when I end up, it's like some of my work, when I work with like really high-end uh, executive leadership, you know, those are people who are working like all the time on the same thing. Like it's a one way thing and there's no diversity. Um, you know, I was talking to this uh, one uh, CEO who I work with and I'm like, and who likes Lego and I'm like, build Lego. Like, why are you not building more Lego? <laughs> you know, uh, there's a new Harry Potter set out. Go get it. Right. Build, um, it, up. build it up. Like, you know, uh, I, I love to bake. Like I love, I, can bit, I have a horrible sweet tooth. <laughs> I, I can, I can relate. I just can't bake. I'm a horrible cook. Well, you know what? You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised, Hassan, what you can do. Yeah. It, it, it is just a simple series of people say you can't do something. I promise you, you can do anything. It's practice. Yeah. As I said, psychologists, I say that. And so when you move in that direction, even if your cake deflates, yeah. Um, you know, doing it and having your brain move in different directions is one of the best ways to obtain a sense of stability. I like how I like how you plug my podcast at the end. <laughs> but okay, so as a decorated psychologist uh, who has successfully succeeded in the field that you are in, what kind of advice would you give to upcoming psychologists or people that are trying to think of doing psychology? Don't do psychology. No, I'm just yeah, that's what. <laughs> I mean, no, I, what I'm saying is that if you want to do psychology, you should be really committed to it. Yeah. Um, it's a long road. Um, it's, a, it's a long road to get there, but it is a, it is a beautiful career uh, that I absolutely love. They're, the programs for psychology led in very few people. So it's not that you... Yeah, yeah, but our program here has about 150 applicants and they accept three to five a year wow yeah and then it takes then you have like this is after an undergrad then you have a three-year master's and a four-year phd wow at minimum so um so it, it's definitely something you need to be committed to um but i would say this it is an absolutely beautiful and humane profession that has endless possibilities um 
the application of how we understand humanity applies to everything. There are psychologists who work in the military. There's psychologists who do your classic therapy. There's psychologists like me who work in diversity and inclusion. There's there's psychologists um, who are economists. Actually, a lot of behavioral economists are psychologists. Wow. So it has endless possibilities. Um, if you love this field, if you love working with people and understanding why people tick, and it's a committed thing, do it. Um, the advice I would give to you would be to the same per- same advice I give to anybody trying to get into any profession is persistence. The difference between you getting into something and somebody else not getting in is just that one person persisted. Uh, intelligence, yeah, intelligence is intelligence is partially an artificial construct. Yes, we have a genetic predisposition of certain strengths and weaknesses. And any kind of intelligence will tell you what your strengths and weaknesses are in test. But but the rest of it is really a sense of commitment. You know, um, commitment, luck and circumstance, really. Timing. And and timing. And I and I think if you if you can if you if you're committed enough, you'll you'll make those things fit. It just may take longer than you think. And but if you're committed to it and you love that field, then then you'll do it. See, I feel like I feel like um, as a as a person who's in engineering and all all that, like I see people that spend all their days, all their time studying. You know, they're like driven towards that one goal. And I feel like isn't. And then I when I was in high school, I had a I had a teacher who used to tell me, Hassan, you're doing a little too much. Maybe you should stop doing a few things and like focus on a little some things. And I my parents tell me all the time, they're like, maybe focus on one goal before going on to different goals. You know, yeah. I'm as a per- me as a person, I like to do everything. I like to take the whole job. You know, if there's a cake, I don't want just a slice. I want the whole cake. Like, yeah. I'm not, not going to take the one slice. Like, that's, that's not filling. Like, I want the whole cake. But the thing is that, like, this teacher used to tell me, there, I'm going to burn out. You know, the concept of burning out. Like, you hear that all the time. And yeah. I just want to know, how can people avoid that? How can people avoid that burnout when they're just so persistent on trying to get to that one goal? Well, I think it's about the diversity. Like, I think, Hassan, to use your metaphor, it's not to eat the entire cake, but to yeah. have a slice of cake, you know, to have some, you know, grilled cheese sandwich, to have some cookies, <laughs> even if it's just sweets, right? Like yeah. try different things um, because you never know where you're going to, you never know where you're going to get. And uh, exactly. so I, as I say, it's that diversity of experience that really helps you balance out. And I think part of that diversity should be rest, right? Even if you think about people, like people who are athletic trainers, they'll say to you, you need your rest day. Sleep, sleep. Right? So your brain, like your brain needs rest to consolidate memory. If you are constantly grinding it, uh, it cannot consolidate what it needs to. It needs that time to rest and recuperate, you know, sleep or otherwise um, to be able to, to be able to consolidate that information. To be able to continue doing what you do best. Correct. So as a, as an end note, do you have anything like you'd like to say to the young uh, future of this generation? Maybe, who knows? Yeah, it is a big question because a lot of people that we talk to today, like if, especially when I've talked to a lot of older people, the first thing that they're like, oh, you guys are the, you guys are gonna be the ones that fix our gener- our world and all climate and all that. But like, what, what kind of thing would you want to say to them as, as a person who's not old yet, you're like still in your young prime, you're out here. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <laughs> thanks. Tell us little younger people. I know somebody called me uncle the other day, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> someone called me uncle too. I'm only oh, 19. Yeah, I was walking in the mosque, and this kid's like, "Hey, uncle!" I was like, "Dude, chill, <laughs> <laughs> chill out." <laughs> yeah, it's that COVID weight. It's gonna go something. COVID weight. <laughs> um, maybe, what can I? What can I tell you would be the best thing? Go out on a limb is what I would say. Go out on a limb. You'd be surprised what you find. Like, I mean. There's something to be said for safety, but there is definitely something to be said for going out on a limb. And I think if you, and going out on a limb isn't doing it in a dumb way. Orchestrate it in a way that you will be supported by going out that. Calculate the risks, figure it out, and then give it a try. You know, at a young age, you have the opportunity to try a lot of different things. 30 is now the new 20. You know, you have, you have time to figure that out. And I would say if there's something you're really passionate about doing, you could be do it, but just do it amazingly. Go out on a limb and just do it amazingly well. Just prove people wrong. Prove people that, you know, they trusted you and then you go out there and you you rock the world. Just expect that it's not easy, right? Like yeah. there's, there's no like I'm thankful for where I am, but like I'd be lying to you if I told you it was easy. It's never yeah, easy. It was like it was a challenge, and there's a so expect challenges. It's it's part of life, and and learn from. And those challenges are there to teach you something. I can I promise you that you'll go through hardship. You'll go through, and as people of color, you'll go through more hardship. I believe that you will. Yeah. Uh, if you are a person of color and listening to this, um, but but those those things will make you more resilient. See-